Welcome to the Owl Hoot Podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. This is a show for any person interested in the environment and sustainability. I arrived at a point in my own life where I wanted to know more about the state of our planet and how I can play my part, albeit small, in mitigating climate change, reducing pollution and supporting biodiversity. I decided that chatting to others who are already doing something might be a good place to start. So each episode will feature a different guest telling their stories in and around an environmental activity that will perhaps provide you with ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Enjoy listening and let me know if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about on the podcast and I'll do my best to address it. With me today is Peter von der Gaag. Executive Director of Ecosystem Restoration Camps, a global movement aiming to repair broken ecosystems, restore biodiversity and improve the livelihoods of local communities. Since starting in 2016, they have grown to 37 camps in 26 countries across six continents. Peter has extensive experience in organisational development, communications and marketing, working with organisations such as IUCN and Triodos Bank. He also chairs TrueStone, an initiative to improve the working conditions and environmental impacts of stone extraction. Peter is well placed to share his experiences of making an environmental difference at an organisational level. And I'm extremely pleased to welcome him to the podcast. Thanks, Peter, for coming along today. I'd like to start just to go back a bit in your history and find out what drew you to working for companies that were promoting sustainability and uh, a positive environmental impact. Sure. And I, I, I think that answer goes back to my college years, actually, when I lived in the United States. And at the college where I went to school, a group of students realized that the homeless in the city of Memphis, where I went to college, didn't get a hot meal. Uh, no one served a hot meal to the homeless and decided to take this up themselves. And we collected money uh, every week uh, to provide about 250 people a meal. And for me, it, it made me realize that there's quite a few things not going very well in our society. But in my studies, I was focused on East-West relations. Uh, and in 1991, the, the wall fell, the Berlin Wall fell. And our international relations study became a study of history because the Cold War sort of ended in that period too, 1990, 1989. We realized that we became students of history and no longer students of actual politics. And then I, throughout those years, I also realized that there were quite a few things not going very well on our planet. Uh, in my master's, I focused on development policy and development politics and international organizations. And my very first job was at an NGO who was focusing on the sustainable development agenda. And I have to admit that that was the moment where I started to study environmental issues. It's the first job. Okay, so it was a case of a bit of a slow burn by the sounds of it. Well, many, many people wait till they're retired before they figure out something is wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, yes, no, I didn't mean like that. I mean, it, it wasn't your ambition from, I'm going to do this degree and I'm going to work in this no, sector. No, it, it, it's no. sort of a, but obviously ever since at that point, you've been working in those areas. 
what has drawn you to the different types of role that you've had up until the point of ecosystem restoration camps? Yeah, okay. So the first organization was a network organization and it networks civil society organizations from the former Soviet Union. This is where my former study came in handy. Uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and North America into uh, about 140 organizations into a skill sharing platform. And uh, the central secretariat of this network represented these organizations at international conferences of the United Nations, of the EU, of the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And in that role, I got involved in what is called uh, multi-stakeholder initiatives. And this is what I think is the most attractive bit about the current sustainable development movement is that corporates, governments, uh, civil societies, uh, trade unions, all kinds of actors are trying to figure out how to collaborate uh, with each other to achieve these giant uh, global societal issues. I mean, it's easy in a corporate to develop a product, but when you're touching something as big as child labor or climate change or biodiversity loss, it becomes really difficult. And in all of the organizations I work with, with the exception of having spent four years at a, a single bank, trying to figure out what life in the corporate sector was life like, all of them have been networking organizations, uh, trying to join up, collaborate to tackle uh, issues larger than we as an individual could, could try to tackle ourselves. And I find that dynamic really interesting. Uh, I don't think there's another route either. I mean, I don't think anyone on their own can do it. Not one corporate, not one government, not anyone. And if anyone claims they can, they're lying or they're marketing themselves falsely. It has to be collaboration. And I've been doing this now for 26 years and uh, gained a lot of experience in collaborative models where people are motivated themselves contribute to something beyond their own competitive little space. And I, I think that's fascinating. And that's what has sort of become my specialization in the environmental movement, the collaborative approach. I think uh, you make an absolutely excellent point there about it being more than just one person, one organization. It's just got to come from everywhere. And that's no mean task for any part of this sort of space, if you like. How have you, you've obviously developed lots of skills in the art of, I say art, of bringing different people and organizations together. What has it been about that, that, that you've been able to create that sort of dynamic? Oh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm, I'm totally talented at it, but the, it, gets, it gets interesting. And you notice that others find it interesting is uh, when we, uh, when it becomes, collaborative, when uh, people sort of drop their uh, negotiating stances and start to think together to figure out a particular problem. And at that moment, almost everyone who is in the group gets excited about it too. Uh, it's moving forward and we're not stuck anymore. And once you've reached that point, it just becomes, you, you become enthusiastic yourself and you want to continue. And every time, and there have been moments where that hasn't been achieved and then you move away. And when it does happen, I like to stick around and see what else we can be doing. Uh, in ecosystem restoration camps, that is currently happening. It's 40 individual projects who 
some of them have been around for 40 years in their own little cocoon. And some collaboration has taken place, but they have now joined this movement where there's lots of sharing taking place and where people are being asked to come and help. Uh, and it all has to, it all comes from people themselves who want to contribute. I think the same thing is happening in that True Stone initiative where it's stone uh, importing companies or stone uh, companies that work with stone, it's governments, it's trade unions, it's NGOs again, but it's also the kitchen business and the gardening business and the construction business, all trying to figure out a way out of the competitive world that they're usually in to solve something that is motivating and they're finding the energy to do so because the energy just has appeared in that initiative. And there's a few more. So I've learned uh, at step one is trying to find that energy. And once it's there, things start to happen uh, from all these different perspectives, mm. something starts to grow. And uh, what I've also learned, if, you're, if you facilitate such networks and you come with a presupposed outcome, that is unlikely to, to happen. Uh, you can't steer intrinsic motivation. It has to really come from people themselves. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So tell me, how did you, uh, what was it about the ecosystems restoration camps that drew you to this particular project? Yeah, I worked for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and then at the National Committee of the Netherlands. And I met John Liu while I worked there. This is 2008, 2009. And John Liu made this film about the uh, incredible restoration of the Les Plateau in China, uh, an area the size of Belgium. It's giant, uh, fully desertified, eroded, uh, lots of poverty. People were dependent on goats eating every single bit of green that sprouted so that nothing but kind of sort of a dirt landscape remained. And the World Bank with the Chinese government decided to change that because the Les Plateau used to be a really green and lush area. It's also where the Han Chinese got started. And you actually see around the world everywhere where humanity started, it's currently deserts. When they weren't, when we started there, yeah, Iran, Iraq, everyone knows what that, what that looks like. But in the Bible, it's called paradise. It was green and it had everything. The last plateau uh, was very green. Uh, if you ever watch the film, you'll see how, how green it is now. That's what it used to be. And less actually is what we call the soil type that's really fertile. I mean, it's named after that plateau. Okay. But it wasn't anymore. And in that film, in that project that took about 10, 15 years, you saw this incredible transformation from desert to forested agriculture, people living in, you know, in, 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 in a really wealthy place uh, because of the ecosystem that got transformed. That was, that was very inspiring. And uh, I then went to banking, did some really interesting things, got out of banking, did some time in natural capital valuation, where the value of natural systems for our human well-being was being discovered uh, in, on the financial, in a financial way. Uh, the ecosystem restoration, you see it happen, and the financial accounting showed it happening. It's worth for humanity to invest in restoring ecosystems because we're better off when we've done. And then in 2016, John called uh, to see if I wanted to join the supervisory board of ecosystem restoration camps. 
I liked the idea of a collaborative community already, because I had been doing that in many instances before. So I said, sure. And then after a year, a year and a half, I and another supervisor board member agreed to temporarily become directors of uh, the foundation that had been set up. And I think we're in year three now, so there's no no temporary there anymore. <laughs> it's now a job, but it's it's really enjoyable. You know you're doing something that works. You're working with people who are intrinsically motivated to make it happen and willing to share. I mean, everything comes together in this one organization, from my perspective, of what needs to happen to uh, to repair what's broken and give humanity a sustainable future on this planet. It started with just the one camp. How have you been able to scale that up and make it work in other places? Has it been easy to then say, oh, well, it's worked here, we can take it elsewhere? What's What have been the... The challenges yeah so the first camp was a uh, camp altiplano in spain and it was born before the foundation was set up uh, a farmer uh, leased for a euro a year uh, six hectares of his land in spain alfonso is the farmer's name guy in his early 30s uh, really inspired by regenerative agriculture and, and the film from john Yu, by the way and the first idea was that we would be building camp locations, literally tents, kitchens, uh, toilets, showers in very degraded lands. And the Altiplano is a very degraded land. Uh, and that the youth of the world would collect there and start to repair ecosystems. And the first camp was in Spain and it was modeled in that way. But uh, we are a new organization did not have access to the large amounts of monies at, uh, that are around on the planet to do with very little means. And we found that it is actually quite expensive. And if you reason that through, or if you want to do hundreds of camps, it becomes really expensive to build the infrastructure, but also to maintain a group of people in the middle of nowhere with no, no resources. You know, you need to have trucks, you need to, you need to buy your food at, at stores far away. It was an expensive exercise. And we realized that uh, because the conditions were so harsh, not much work could take place either. They were literally in survival mode most of the time because of little resources available and no resources there to, to continue with. And, and we realized that we can't do this unless we have billions or, or hundreds of millions and we are not going to get hundreds of millions. So we need to figure out another route. But the idea of people who would like to spend their holidays or students right after school or while they're still in school doing their internships at restoration projects. Uh, in other words, people traveling from all over the world to go and help still is a really good idea because most restoration projects need the labor. Uh, they need the people on the ground to help plant the trees or build the, the water management systems, whatever is needed in that project even if it's just spending a week shoveling compost, it's needed. Uh, and that's labor intensive work. So the idea of providing an infrastructure at a project people to go to is still a good one. But we also thought most people, especially from the West who have free time, they're not struggling every day to survive, can afford to spend money on going to a hotel or B&B or, be hosted by people that live in the area and in that way contribute. So the idea of the camp or 
people around the world to come together and restore Earth. Still is there, but we're now working with existing projects who like the idea of these volunteers. We call them campers to come and visit them. The other thing that uh, is part of the camp model that didn't really work well in Spain because it was mostly Northern Europeans going to Spain to restore people's ecosystems. And the local involvement was very limited, except for the farmer, is that uh, the camp is also a concept for local communities to come together. Uh, in Guatemala, it's 12 villages who come together through the idea of the camp to work together to restore the hillsides that have been uh, destroyed through slash and burn agriculture, mostly by larger corporations. Or in Mombasa, it's uh, young people living in slums who come together and are restoring mangroves. Uh, or it's a group of farmers in India who want to shift from monoculture to agroforestry. So all these examples are, again, the idea of normal, regular farmers, community dwellers, people that live in communities, or people who, like you and me, would like to contribute to these great things. We're not talking about professionals here. To come together in a place, work with an expert to figure out what to do, and then just do it. Uh, and then that is actually really low cost and much more effective because the work is actually now getting done. And the local involvement ensures their sustainability because the project starts locally. It starts with the local community and that's the intrinsic motivation. No one is steering anyone to do anything anywhere. Locally in Guatemala, they decided to do agroforestry on their hillsides. In Mombasa, it's planting mangroves. And there's all these different examples in our network of what people feel locally they want to do and then say, part of the ecosystem restoration continuum of things that we need to do to repair this planet. Can we become part of the camps movement? Because we want to do this. We would really like to use your expertise from your advisory council and the other camps. Can we become part of this movement? And people like you and me, who would like to spend uh, uh, their holidays uh, with some meaning and some impact, we can sign up to go to these camps. Now that hasn't been possible for the past year because of the pandemic, but in theory, that should be possible soon. And then uh, anyone can come and contribute and learn hence what role we can play within ecosystems to repair them, but also to maintain them. I think that's very exciting because it built itself on intrinsic motivation and involves uh, the, the creative and uh, in this case, physical ability of people to help out. It sounds quite inclusive in terms of the different types of people that you can get involved within a camp from the local community to people that want to visit or help out in, in many different ways. How have you discovered these particular places that need, I mean, obviously there are plenty of, of options of places around the world that you could choose to restore land. How have you, how has that connection been made to set up a, a yeah. collaboration? That's a good question. I think, uh, well, we have an application procedure for these projects to become a camp. Uh, we, we do check a few things. Uh, there is some due diligence ranking term to find out if these places are real, uh, if they're safe for people to travel to, and if there is, uh, if the intrinsic motivation is truly intrinsic. Uh, so we do do that. Uh, most current locations, and we're about to add, uh, you said 37, uh, we're about to add three more in the next week. Uh, 
find us and apply to us. And I think they find us because they're somehow connected to our advisory council or have heard about us on social media or know one of the other accounts. Because in the world of restoration, people do know each other. And uh, that word of mouth, I think, is our primary driver for camps to join us and social media. They apply, we check them out, uh, and then they join the network if we see no reason not to have them join us. And our threshold is really low. And then what the camps have to do to guarantee that people like you and me can go there is they have to uh, uphold uh, some health and safety policies. You have to be safe where you go. Uh, you have to understand that there are, that, you know, some neighborhoods aren't very safe. Uh, some animals aren't very safe. Uh, you could be in really dry areas, bring along enough water, that type of instruction. So you're working with some serious tools here and machines. Be careful. Uh, don't stand in front of the thing with the big pointy bit. <laughs> that can hurt you. Yeah, that kind of instruction. And there's a code of conduct uh, where we, and that's because we're trying to be inclusive. Anyone, anyone should be welcome in this work. In the end, it's about the work that you're doing uh, and not about your belief system, not about uh, you know, what political color you have or how, you know if you eat meat or not. Uh, none of those discussions are necessary for you to be an ecosystem restorer. None of those things need to be, you know, you don't need to be the perfect woke person to be an ecosystem restorer. Anyone can plant a tree and we need that to happen across the planet. So anyone is welcome. And camps just need to make sure that they offer those types of safe locations so that we can be completely inclusive. It sounds from what you're saying that each camp could be quite unique in that because it's perhaps run in a slightly different way that there's the overarching theme is there, but actually on the ground, they might be trying to restore land in a different way. They might have different methods. Uh, yeah. A different way of just running the camp it sounds quite a, a unique thing on each camp. Is that the case? Yes, and that's the. I think that's the only way you do it. Uh, the, the one, the one model I don't think will work. Uh, the planet is diverse. Ecosystems are diverse. Uh, local needs, wishes. You know, what do people want to achieve locally is diverse, and all that plays a role in uh, repairing the ecosystems. Do you have uh, certain criteria that, I don't know, like for, for example, they can't use pesticides or that sort of thing. Are those sort of built into your ethos of what um, restoration looks like? Or is that again? Yeah, you can't be a camp if you're, if you're not uh, restoring ecosystems and introducing regenerative agricultural uses or uh, practices within ecosystems. You know, once an ecosystem is restored and you return to the practice that destroyed it, you know, there's, there was no point. Uh, it's great for camps because we'll exist forever, but that's not, that's not our raison d'etre either. We, we are critical about uh, land use uh, and fisheries that in the end end up destroying systems. Uh, and we know that monocultures, heavy pesticide use, heavy uh, fertilizer use do that. They deplete soils. And the whole point is to not deplete them. So uh, there we're critical. Uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. 
And within each camp, presumably there's some sort of end goal of what the site will look like at the end of it. How long does that take? Do they get to the point where they go, right, our job is done here. It's now a lovely restored piece of land and they move on. Or how does that work? We just started and most projects take 10, 20, 30 years. So we haven't reached points yet at projects where they say, hey, we're done. That's going to be a while. Um, is an ecosystem ever well-maintained or well-preserved or functioning fully automatically? A fully restored ecosystem doesn't need our help. A fully restored ecosystem with humanity understanding its role within the ecosystem functions pretty much without intervention. Will we ever get there? It's a really good philosophical question, which is impossible to answer right now because we don't know yet how we fit well within ecosystems. And we don't know when the ecosystem is fully restored yet. All that science is not very great either yet. But undoubtedly, it's got to be headed in the right direction from what you're doing on the ground. Yeah, well, in, in you know, really degraded lands, it starts to regreen after a while. Water streams start to return. Biodiversity starts to return. Animals and plants start to return. Uh, productivity of the land increases. The soil uh, has more organic matter, holds more, more moisture, starts to improve. That's the direction where you want to go. You want to go to more biodiversity, more water, more uh, soil organic matter, a, a more of a return to native ecosystems as they have been. Although I'd like to speak about moving forward to natural systems, because I'm not sure if we, how far we have to go back before degradation didn't take place within ecosystems. Mm. You know, the example, I, I use it a lot for Iraq, Iran, between the Euphrates and the Tigris, which is the location of paradise in the Bible. How long ago was that when that became a desert? I don't know. Uh, mm. People probably do, I don't. The Lost Baton started started the degradation in five, six, ten thousand years ago. You know, the, the moment man developed or woman developed agriculture, we probably started degradation. So moving forward to a a strong, robust, resilient natural system is the goal for all of the planet. And we will live there too, maybe even with 11 billion people. And that's, an, that's a new world. The hunter-gathering human, humans can't exist when there's 11 billion of us. I mean, there isn't enough space. Yes, challenging, for sure. Yeah. And we won't go to Mars. <laughs> no, let's hope not. Well, not, yes, let's not go there. <laughs> um, you did mention <laughs> earlier that, um, that it sounds like the people are coming to you to say if they can be part of your, yeah. your plan. So does that mean you don't have any, because I know that you've got targets about how many people you'd like to be involved in, how many yeah. uh, camps across the world. Do you see that at some point you will have to go out and say, you know, try and find camps, or is, do you think there'll be enough people coming to you going, actually, we want to be part of what you're doing? I think for now, there is a large amount of projects that may want to join us, completely up to them. Uh, in our thinking, we would like, we'd love to go to hundreds of camps around the planet and have, in our current targets, a million people by 2030. But millions over the next 10, 20 years participate in this work. Uh, and maybe uh, we uh, will we'll figure out how to build camps like we started in Altiplano, 
and you know insert our own camps in really badly degraded lands. Maybe uh, right now I wouldn't commit to that, but that could happen in a distant future. Uh, so far, um, there are plenty of projects who want to join. And I think we can easily grow to our target of 100 camps in the movement uh, in the next few years. And that we may actually reach that in the next two, three years already, uh, considering the amount of interest that we are, we are getting from projects to be in, included in our network. And we're not exclusive to as a network to them. Uh, people are part of other networks, collaborate in other ways. Um, so... Uh, there's a lot happening. I mean, the United Nations has just launched a UN decade on ecosystem restoration. All kinds of organizations are, are getting involved in that. So the, the, the world of ecosystem restoration is growing very rapidly and we are just one of the players there. Uh, and not everyone wants to be a camp, that's fine. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned um, again earlier that it was perhaps students or young people that were, were taking some time out to the camps. Is that still the case? Is that still the types of people that go to your your camps and help out? And some, some, some. Uh, right now we actually have a request for students to go to camps when COVID allows mm. to help us with monitoring and evaluation work at camps because we do need to monitor and evaluate what we're doing at these camp locations that we're doing. Uh, yes, postgraduates or internships it can all be arranged with camps. You arrange it directly with camps themselves. And if they're open to that, you, you would be welcome. But you see whole families going to now or corporates who would like to send a team for right. a couple of days to a camp and learn something about the team and learn something about ecosystems in the process. I hope there's going to be many of those because that will really help change attitudes of human beings towards yeah. natural worlds. Yeah. And that was going to be my next question, because I can imagine actually spending time at the camp, it's going to have some sort of impact on that person that stays there, unless they do this, that sort of thing, you know, as part of their every day, all day. Most people yeah. are, are going to come to it with, oh, this is this is what it like, you know, it's like to, to work on the land and build something. Do you get much feedback from the people that have been in terms of yep. what it's what it's done for their personal journey? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are disgruntled people that have gone and haven't grown much as an individual. We're getting lots of uh, per, what I call personal transformation stories back. Uh, people uh, young or older who were really, really suffering from eco-anxiety finding everything that's happening on the planet just uh, too painful to bear, just spending a little bit of time at a camp, physically repairing what's broken, knowing you're sequestering carbon, restoring hydrological cycles, you know, preserving biodiversity or having biodiversity re return to spaces where it has left. That uh, really gives a sense of personal efficacy, personal power, it's empowering that you as an individual can have that contribution. Plus, and this might be a wee bit more out there, just being with your hands in the soil and your hands and your feet on the ground around you too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's very good mental work to be working physically. <laughs> uh, most of us sit behind screens and then just to have your hands in dirt. Uh, I've seen it happen where people would come from their office jobs they would have to move composts to 
eat some trees. And first it would be with a shovel very carefully. And after that, while well, it's just with the hands and digging away around the tree, not using tools anymore, but just with your hands. And this is sort of a liberating feeling that the natural world isn't dirty uh, and scary, but uh, you know, there you are uh, and you fit. Yeah. Uh, that already is a bit of a transformation. And then to understand that we can repair broken ecosystems, uh, restore ecosystems, have life return, water return, livelihoods return through this, basically this very holistic approach of ecosystem restoration. It really provides us with hope, I think, as, as human beings. And that transforms too. And, and you said when you started this role that it was temporary and now it's not temporary. Is that because yeah. of the nature of the, what is it that's kept oh, you going? Oh, it's too much fun. That's okay, too much fun. that's good. Hey, it's awful now, <laughs> but it's too much fun. Uh, and it's it's too interesting. And it's, as I said, I get motivated by all this energy that takes place. And, uh, you know, we're building a knowledge exchange platform and a large California company is, is building it for us from the goodness of their hearts. Uh, and, you know, this, all these, all these things that are, that are being sent to you as gifts, I find that amazing. And then to see how it inspires all these people. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's not just the youth here who are stuck in Western ways of living. In Somalia, it's young women deciding to turn around the lives of their villages. In Syria, it's women farmers who are living in this completely bombed out, destroyed land and most of their family dead, who have decided let's restore our ecosystem, let's use regenerative agriculture to prevent the type of uh, bleak outlook that we've been suffering from that caused our discontent with the government no matter what you think of the government. Let's not get into that. No. Uh, it's, as I said, it's the, the young people in the slums of Mombasa who want to prevent flooding, who just decided they've learned that mangrove planting works. So they've started to plant mangroves. Uh, that is uh, also a transformative and inspiring thing to be part of and to see happening. The catch in Guatemala planting forests on those hillsides that have been cut. In Morocco, uh, villages that have been flooded every time it rains, taking on ecosystem restoration to prevent the flooding and it's working. So neighboring villages are, are going to get started. That's the sort of uh, inspiration uh, that we need on this planet, that you've realized there's a recipe to get out of misery and it's restoring our natural system and maintaining the natural system once it's restored. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot to be said for that, being able to feel like you can do something. And that leads me nicely to uh, two final questions, one of which is, what would uh, you recommend to anyone that's listened to this conversation that they, they can do after listening? Uh, if you live in a house with a tiled up backyard, remove those tiles. <laughs> Good stuff. And plant some plants. You know, if you live on a balcony, plants, put some plants in a pots. Uh, start to introduce some green in your life. You'll see some change. Maybe grow your own herbs and spices and fruits, whatever you could on whatever piece of land or area you have available. If you have uh, more time, find a local initiative. Uh, they may not be part of ecosystem restoration camps, but I'm sure if you look around, you'll find something. A community garden, 
uh, a tiny forest initiative, uh, uh, a, a local neighborhood farm where you could, you know, participate in 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 your in the work that's being done. Uh, that's a way to, to to get started. If you really want to go deep, join ecosystem restoration camps. Go to these most degraded places around the world. Uh, take our courses. Really become an expert. Uh, but you don't have to uh, start there. Uh, I think you can just look around in the place where you live and see what you could contribute to, could contribute to there. Always, you're welcome to join the ecosystem restoration camps. Uh, we would love to be a large global movement, and there's lots of inspiration there. Great, it, it definitely. That's that's a place for everyone to be able to get involved at whatever level. Yeah. And finally, yeah. 2050 seems to be. Uh, a year in which we're all working towards. How do you see the world in 2050? I think uh, in 2050, that's relatively very far away. Uh, I think we'll, our energy supply will no longer be a worry because we figured out how to do that in a renewable way. Uh, oh yeah, well, some nuclear power plants will still be up and running and the waste will still be there, but most of that will be less of a worry. I think in 2050, uh, the benefits of what is what I call the natural capital of this planet are fully understood. We may not understand how it works yet because there's so many things that we just cannot fathom yet, but uh, the benefit of maintaining a strong natural capital base, strong functioning ecosystems are fully understood and we're well on the way in repairing them or maintaining them because it isn't because you have to. It isn't because environmentalists ask you to do it, but because we understand why that's a really good idea on all kinds of levels, for the economy, for human well-being, etc. There's no doubt uh, that will be 2050. By that time, we'll also figure out what was wrong in everything I just said and are trying to repair that. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It sounds like a, an optimistic problem solving type time where we're going to get it right um, and if we don't get it right straight away we're going to work out how to get it right yeah well if we don't get it right we go extinct which is also <laughs> good for the planet but i you know my daughter that causes a lot of anxiety with her she's only 40 in 2050 and that's a terrible idea that we're extinct yeah. in the next decades that follow so let's prevent that yeah, absolutely. Let's prevent that. I think that's a good place to end the conversation, Peter. I'm definitely going to reiterate that. Let's prevent that. <laughs> so yes. thank you very much for your time this sure. afternoon. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. Look forward to hearing it. Thanks again to Peter for his insight into the Ecosystem Restoration Camps movement. What I particularly liked was the running theme of collaboration and the benefits that can be had through people finding ways to work together to positively impact our environment. If you would like to know more about getting involved with ecosystem restoration camps, you can find the links in my show notes at www.theowlhoot.com forward slash podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music and to you for listening. Next time on the podcast, I'll be chatting with Marisha Kay, co-owner of the Earth Harmony Shop, supplier of organic and vegan products for low-impact living. We cover all sorts of green topics in this conversation, so well worth a listen. 
If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, then please do subscribe, rate and review through your podcast app. And why not share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it? Until next time, bye for now.